Hello, welcome to I Love Rock and Roll. I'm Ken Krantz. And I am Chip Chantry. Uh, thanks for listening to I Love Rock and Roll, the only rock and roll podcast on the internet. <laughs> as far as I know, we're, we're one of only maybe four or five podcasts on the entire internet. I think it's just, yeah, it's just us and my favorite murder, I think. So don't go, <laughs> don't go looking for any other music podcast because they're not there. It's just us. What's a podcast? It's, it's like a radio show uh, on your telephone. It's like a telephone radio show. It's, it's like a radio show that nobody hears. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's as if, it, yeah, it, it's, it's as if Howard Stern just recorded all of his stuff onto, uh, you know, three quarter inch tape and then just threw it down a well. And, and that's, that's what a podcast is. <laughs> with with us today, I, I don't even know if three quarter inch tape is a. I, I that's how little I understand about the recording process. I just picked <laughs> a length and said three quarter inch tape probably is. I know their widths, and I don't know what that is. Um, with us today, and I'm sick of talking to you. Can you please introduce our guest? Well, I would please. if you'd shut the fuck up. Just introduce him. <laughs> <laughs> with us today uh, is a returning guest, uh, Bennett Miller from the band Ghost Towns. What's going on, Bennett? Hi. Hi, how's it going, Ken? How's uh, it going, Chip? Thanks for coming on, man. Really excited to be on this uh, fabulous new thing called a podcast. Yes, phone making, radio show. Making history, talking about rock and roll for the first time. Yep, uh, doing prank calls, uh, <laughs> talking about the traffic. You know, giving updates uh, on 10 and 2, 10 and two. traffic updates on the twos. Oh, yeah. We should. That would be great to record a podcast that's just like traffic and weather. And you could just listen to it whenever. <laughs> that would be uh, maybe. Uh, mm. um, I, I was trying to come up with like a smart ass title and then my mind went blank. Yeah. I was just thinking about how long it's been since I actually tried to get traffic on the 10 and the twos from 10, 10 wins in New York city. And it's like, Oh yeah, man, there's like ways now. So yeah, it's, but back in the day, it'd be like, fuck, it's, it's 10 58. I have 12 minutes before I find out what I, where I need to go. You know what the, I mean? It's the, it's the worst. Yeah. And then you're like, you're hoping that like it comes up before that exit on the right. highway comes up. So it's like, right. I need to know this before I have to merge off. So you're like driving slow in the right-hand lane. People exactly. are honking at you. You're like waiting for the 10 or the two to come up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I once switched my ways voice to uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger because mm -hmm. I thought it would be hilarious. Yeah. And it was hilarious for like 40 minutes. Uh -huh. But then it took me a week to figure out how to switch it back. And then it was just, it was, it was aggravating. He was like, make a U-turn. Yeah. <laughs> Get to the circle. Uh, to the chopper. You, you just chopper. always go to the chopper. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know what a chopper is. I'm not. Yeah, I, I don't know what a chopper is, but we'll get there somehow. <laughs> uh, I actually recently switched my way's voice over to Kanye West. Doesn't give many directions, but boy, I learned a lot about a lot of different things. Yeah. <laughs> Make a left you... of controversial knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. He uh, let me say this about do, do you know how anti-Semitic you have to be for me to take notice? <laughs> like I'm no. I'm I'm probably uh, one of the top five worst Jews who ever yeah. lived. 
Yeah. Uh, I one time on uh, Yom Kippur, which is like our day of atonement, where you're supposed to fast for 24 hours and go to temple and ask God. Tell people you're sorry. Yeah. 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 It's 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 like a 12 step program in 24 hours. (laughs) And uh, you're supposed to go to temple and ask God for forgiveness for all the shitty things you did. And um, I drove separately from my family, like my mom and uh, stepdad, and um, there weren't seats by them. So I told them I was going to go sit in the back. And instead, I drove home like to their house, sat on their deck, smoked a joint and then got a bacon, egg and cheese biscuit from McDonald's. Bacon. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sorry. And the good news is God has to forgive you for that because it's Yom Kippur. Yeah, I fasted the following year and was like, hey, can you forgive that? (laughs) I smoked a joint and ate bacon, egg and cheese on the highest, like the holiest day for Jews and then drove back right when Temple was letting out and was like, just started mingling with people like I'd been. (laughs) I told my mom, I was like, wow, what a sermon that that one really. So my point is. For for me to be offended and anti-Semitism, yeah. like you yeah. have to really just not be ever shutting the fuck up about it. Right. Ken, I, Ken's, Ken's motto is uh, first they came for the communist, but I didn't listen because I was playing Madden. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, we're talking about Daryl Jones of the Rolling Stones today. <laughs> and we have a, and we have another guest on the air, too, don't we? Uh, oh, this one right here. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is my dog coconut. She coconut. was either going to be scratching at the door or sitting on my lap. She's a she's she's a very manly manly pet, as you can see. Very, very. Yeah, I find that with most women that have been alone in a room with me, like they're either <laughs> sitting on my lap or scratching at the door. But it's usually just <laughs> scratching at the door. <laughs> Here, here's a. Here, oh, here's, up? Here's Franklin. Uh, almost Hi, Franklin. Just as, just as manly. So uh, yeah, but, Franklin's way manlier than Coconut. Let's be honest. He was just sleeping on the bed, so he's uh he's see there we go. He's bored too. We got Coconut for my two daughters, and then me and Coconut are definitely best friends. She doesn't care about my daughters. But, oh, that's great. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> you know. Coconut seems like a name you would give a dog stripper. Totally. I mean, she, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> she's easy she's easy too you know what i mean if you see her if you were here you'd be like wow do i have to tip for this <laughs> yeah <laughs> so um today we are talking about daryl jones and for those who don't know daryl jones is in a band uh some of you may have heard of the rolling stones he's been in this band now he's the bass player he replaced the legendary Bill Wyman. Uh, Bill Wyman was in the band, I think, for 30 or 31 years. Daryl Jones has now also been in the band for 30 years. Yep. Uh, and still, I would say almost nobody knows who he is. Which is crazy. And uh, walk me through, Ken, real quick. I know you're a uh, Rolling Stones historian. Who were all the bass players through the years? Was it just Wyman? It was just Bill Wyman and now Daryl Jones. Okay. Except that Keith plays bass on several tracks. As yes. Well. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Keith. Yeah. Yeah. Keith you is. Count, uh, you can count Keith as one of them. Yeah. yeah. I want to say that Keith plays the bass line. I could be wrong about this, but I want to say Keith plays the bass line for um, Sympathy for the Devil, which is like a pretty iconic one. But we're not here to talk about Keith's bass playing, so. Yeah, and but that then, is pretty that is pretty amazing that uh, 
I, I don't think people realize that 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 he jumps on base sometimes. He jump. Oh, yeah. He jumps on base. I, I don't think people realize that Mick is actually a fairly solid guitar player. Mm-hmm. Um, and a and a damn fine um, uh, harp player, harmonica. Yes. Yeah, as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. I think actually Mick came up with the Brown Sugar riff. Mick wrote that really? on guitar. Yeah, while he was filming a movie, like in Australia, he wrote that. He came up with that riff on acoustic. Now, of course, he gives it to Keith and Keith makes it right. You know what it is. But right. yeah, I, I think if, like the thing is, like you see Mick, I think when you're like in between Keith Richards and Ron Wood, you're like, all, all right, man, like, what do you? But the truth is, he's, he's actually a, a pretty solid guitar player. Um, Bennett, you're also a bass player. I am. And uh, I figured when when we decided to talk about Daryl Jones, you were the first person I thought of because uh, you you spent a decent amount of time opening for the Stones. I have. It's pretty pretty lucky thing to get to do. Pretty excited to have gotten to do that for sure. Um. So you you see this dude play? You see him? You know, like every night. How how do you know how many times you've opened for them now? Yeah, uh, twelve. Wow. We did 12, 12 shows with the stones. So I have seen, I've seen Daryl walking around backstage. Um, I'm a little intimidated to go up and be like, Hey Daryl, let's have a base off or whatever. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's just like, you know, especially guys like he's, he's a very humble guy. So I think he would probably be very friendly if I did talk to him, but I always just feel like, you know, fangirling is cool, but I would rather just really have something interesting to say to him. You know what I mean? And so I tend to not, I don't want to bother those guys. If you're backstage and you start fangirling on and you're like opening for them, it's, it's not the best look, you know, no, you want to be respectful of people's space when they're getting ready to do a big show like that. So, right. But, I mean, he, like the cool, the cool thing is it's like to talk to him about anything but music, right? Like, you, right. That would be the cool thing to do. You got to, you got to like play it. You have to play it totally nonchalant, have a just regular conversation between dudes, but that happens very organically. So it's hard to like chase somebody down backstage and then make that happen. You know, you got to like choose your entry. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'll get my opportunity someday. Yeah. Um, so Daryl, 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 have you seen the Queen's Gambit? You like you just started. <laughs> exactly. Daryl, do you listen to I Love Rock and Roll podcast? It's like, like a radio show on your telephone. Yeah, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm actually an expert on you. I was uh, I was chosen <laughs> on the topic of you. Yeah, so we, I, I had the idea to to do an episode on Daryl Jones because the, uh, they just released a documentary. Uh, you can stream, you can get it on Amazon or Apple. Um, and I know I asked what it was called right before uh, we start. Pay in blood uh, in, or in, in the, the blood. blood. Daryl Jones in the blood. In the blood. Oh, pay in blood. Pay in blood. Pay in blood is blood. It's a it's a Bob Dylan song that I was listening oh, to the other oh, yeah. day. Um, in the blood and, and it talks about how, uh, Daryl Jones isn't really, he, he wasn't really a rock bass player. Uh, he was more of a jazz musician, right? Uh, well, it's funny that you would, that you would say that. I mean, like from a surface level, certainly that would be 
a pretty accurate thing to say. Um, but you know, one of his main credits other than the stones is obviously, well, I don't know how obvious it is. He, yep. he played with miles Davis. Right? right. And so in that period of time when he was playing in miles with miles Davis in the eighties and early nineties, um, really right up to the end, um, of miles, he, um, miles really didn't like the term jazz musician. So, like if you like, and even in the documentary, they talk about this. If, if he says, Oh, if I had said I was a jazz musician, that would have sort of been, um, you know, like a taboo statement. You just are a musician. Like, you know, the, the act of just trying to be a uh, musical presence is sort of the goal, but yes, he has very strong um, roots in the improvisatory thing. Also blues. I mean, he's an incredibly well-rounded musician. I think that the best way to say it is that, he probably can do any, any gig that he needs to do on electric bass with like any band. And, you know, he's got, he recorded with Ziggy Marley. He was in Sting's band. You know, he was in Miles's band. I mean, he's got a massive he played with Madonna. Like, he played with Madonna. Yeah. He has like a just ginormous, um, uh, discography. And even beyond that number of artists who he's played with, who he probably didn't record records with, but just, yeah. live with or whatever yeah. are, let me ask you this but, but speaking of miles davis are, are either of you guys jazz fans like do you yeah you, you like i'm a jazz musician too that's my upright bass right over there in the corner oh nice i love oh, it I, I love that I, upright bass i love the upright bass oh, up, go upright on. bass. it's it's the best <laughs> i, I uh, one of my one of my favorite 90s bands that i i love was soul coughing that had oh that, yeah that had that upright bass that just it, it was it was great Totally. Um, I don't understand. Like, I I like jazz and I appreciate jazz and I know it's amazing. And it's like I'm not a, I, I'm not a connoisseur, so I I don't understand it. Can, can you explain to me? And I'm I'm trying not to shit on it because again, I know nothing. And Miles Davis, obviously brilliant. When you listen to some of that stuff from the his '80s stuff, to me it just sounds like like a traffic jam on a cartoon. Like that's what it would sound like. <laughs> like it's just like this is what this is what Times Square. It, 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 like on an episode of Curious George, like it's just sounds everywhere. And I just I can't I can't wrap my head around it at all. I think technically that's called autism. And, uh, <laughs> oh, is that what okay. oh yeah. there's that. There is that. So, yes. yes. Um, yeah. Look, some of it, I, I kind of know what you're talking about, especially because like there is almost a car horn quality to sometimes like these long notes that miles plays. Well, and, and it's, but it's, not even him, like, it's, like, it's like, it's like those, I guess like the eighties, obviously ushered in synthesizer synthesizers yeah. and like, wah, wah, yeah. you know, like what is Yeah. It's well, he was extremely like in his after, you know, I mean, miles spent much of the fifties and sixties, uh, you know, really like doing the standard stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, like, you know, my funny Valentine and all, all those um, records that are like him with, you know, the most famous musicians, basically, because if you played with miles, you then became the most famous guy on your instrument, you know? So we're talking about like Tony Williams on drums, Ron Carter on bass, Herbie Hancock on keys and like Wayne shorter on sax. So like that whole period of time, uh, he, he started moving into original music, but he had done a lot of a lot of like the classic standard jazz stuff. And then in the seventies with stuff like bitches brew and on the corner, and then moving into the eighties, he became much more like, I'm not a jazz musician. I'm a musician. And he was very mm -hmm. deeply inspired by um, 
whatever was cutting edge. And, you know, I know that he tried to, he used like a wah pedal for a bunch of years because he wanted to sound like a guitarist. He was very influenced by Jimi Hendrix, obviously from an earlier period of time. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's like hyper modern sounding, but also dated because it's the eighties and it's, I, I can totally see how people could be like, I can kind of get into this, but it's also like, what the fuck is going on here? You know what I mean? Because yeah. he's, he's very forward thinking and kind of experimental in his approaches. So that is obviously going to be noticeable in the sound in the age. Sure. I don't know if that is a good way to answer. No, that's That's great too. And it's like, again, it's like, I just don't, it's like, I'm not saying it's terrible. It's like, I'm just, I, as somebody who's, who's very novice, I, I, I can't wrap my head around. Look, it's that's the that is the Achilles heel of a jazz musician is that the music that jazz that gets labeled as jazz oftentimes is not as accessible to as many ears as other types of pop music, you know, and especially like after the in the 50s and the 60s, I think it was more accessible to your common ear. And at that point, it was very popular, but then it got more experimental. And then over the course of, you know, then till now, it's like the audience has just shrunk and shrunk and shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. And now it's like very much so kind of a, an elite club, you know, it almost feels like that's what um like I I've said this many times. Like it feels like rock and rolls going the way of jazz a little bit. Like it's yeah. starting to become more of a, a niche thing. Like, because there's an old guard that is like in charge too. Is that, is that part of what, you, cause that's no. how jazz feels like to me is like, there's like an old guard that's been in charge for a really, really long time. And they're not that clean about allowing the sound to change very much. And I'm I, not trying to talk too much shit here. I'm just yeah, kind of trying to make an observation. Um, but. no, no, no. I, well, I, I, I never thought of it that way. I just thought of it in terms of like the audience for it is shrinking, you know, like ah. we, we've, it, it's become like when you used to look at like the Grammys or the MTV video awards, it would be like, you know, 75% rock acts you know 25 percent oh. something else then at one point it was just kind of split down the middle rock acts you know rap acts and you'd have your pop acts and now it's just like hey we'll trot out the foo fighters and the rest is gonna be anything but rock no i think you're right yeah, yeah and it's like modern and like our kids trying to play guitar anymore you yeah, know? I, like everybody's hero was a guitar player in the 80s and the 90s, mm -hmm. you know, and now it's and that's when I started playing. I was like, this is the path to being cool is like yeah. having an electric guitar. You know what I mean? And now it's like now it's like uh, DJing, just put, yeah, like pushing buttons exactly. on your phone. Like, oh, wait, yeah. wait, wait till they see this. You, <laughs> you tap your iPhone. That's all they that's all they're doing, too. Um, I, I love this. I love this story of. um daryl jones auditioning for miles davis yeah like so That's he, he had, so daryl jones is from chicago and uh miles davis i guess one of one of daryl jones's friends was in miles davis miles davis's band at that point and miles liked him a lot and was like hey you got any of these other uh chicago boys i need to know about and um they call up daryl jones and daryl jones on the spot has to play bass over the phone just to get an actual audition. Like Miles just wanted to hear if he heard something over the phone 
that would warrant bringing him in for a real audition. Right. But he couldn't find his bass. Oh, (laughs) he'd been like he'd been like playing guitar or something. For a while, or I'm trying to remember what he, what he'd been doing. He'd been doing something. He, he, he was also saying in, in that talk, he was saying about how he was trying to. He wasn't playing as much because he was trying to charge a premium to play. Because he's like, I'm done playing for like thirty five dollars, so he right. he wasn't playing. So he's like, yeah. And again, I think it was he he picked up something else to play, but he was he he didn't have that many gigs because he was like, I'm not leaving the house for you know less than a hundred bucks or whatever. So he just wasn't playing that much at the time, and it was like in a, the trunk of his car or something. Right. Yeah. But he couldn't find it. And then Miles, Miles was just like, fuck it. Just come to New York. <laughs> Which is, yeah, I can't even, I've, I have like, you know, when you're a musician, you have a particular type of stress dream. And um, like, that is the worst type of stress dream. Like Miles Davis is on the phone. He wants you to play bass for him. Go get your bass. Where's my bass? <laughs> like, can't find your bass. Like I've had, I've had those dreams, you know, like I'm trying to leave for a gig and I just can't get my pants on. Yeah. Something yep. like yeah. That. Oh yeah. That's you know I, I mean? my, my, my comedy stress dream is that my career uh, pans out exactly how it has in real life. <laughs> 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 I wake up in a cold sweat, like, Oh God. <laughs> Uh, yeah, my strip, my stress dream is just me saying yes to a VFW show. <laughs> <laughs> but all those, all those Trump jokes going to land well. <laughs> yep. He, um, but he, so he flies to New York auditions for Miles Davis. Like Miles walks out of the room, uh, which is never a good sign in the middle of an audition. Um, but then his buddy comes back in at some point and he's like, yeah, you got the gig. And then Daryl's right. like, oh, I don't I don't believe it because I, I need to hear it from Miles himself. And then Miles came in and, and told him he got it. And then and he's like in his 20s. It's like such which is just such a ridiculous gig to get. You know what I mean? It's it's like the best fucking gig in the world from the standpoint of being a young bass player. You yeah. Know? It's just my God. And he just, he played his ass off too. Yeah. And if you, you can, you can see some in the documentary, they show some, some scenes and it's like, you know, and he talks a lot about listening and what he learned from being those experience in, in those uh, situations. Um, I, I love what he said about when his dad met Miles Davis, like the, the tour came through Chicago. So he got to play in front of his, his hometown and backstage, his dad's doing that thing that I think most dads would do. Like, Hey, thank you so much for, for giving my son a job and taking such good care of him and letting him see the world. And he said, miles like leaned into his dad and whispered, like, you got any more, like, like any more of these <laughs> kids for my band. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's, he seemed like the coolest boss, like my like it was always just sort of mystical and kind of happy, like uh, Daryl would be nervous, like, I don't know what to do. He's like, just thump it, man. Just thump it. Like, imagine if like Miles Davis was like your boss at the grocery store. It's like, just put the eggs in the bag, man. Just put the <laughs> eggs in the bag. And you're like, I, OK, I guess I can do this. Thank you, Miles. I mean, I've I, it's it's really great that he was nice to Daryl, but like Miles wasn't always like the nicest dude. I mean, he there are some interesting accounts of him like fomenting ill 
vibes between guys in his band because he actually thought they played better like that. Like they would get on stage with animosity and then they would just want to like outdo each other. You know what I mean? So this kind of competition. Yeah. It's scary. Jazz, jazz like the whole vibe shit. It's, I mean, like miles was like kind of stone cold in a lot of ways. Yeah. You know, it's like kind like, of Machiavellian, right? Like, yeah. yeah. Like, let, let Imagine me, like let, take, taking his band to like a team building event. You know, oh God! Where they like <laughs> whitewater rafting and shit. And like, yeah, he'd I'm push. He'd man. push somebody out and then yeah. just keep paddling downstage, and not give him be like, meet you at the meet you at the end, motherfucker. <laughs> well, he did, and I can't blame him for this, but like the the one point he, I guess in I think it was eighty eighty five or so, Daryl was was gonna leave the band. Was like, I'm gonna go play for. St- sting for a while right and then i'd like to come back and i was like you're not coming back like you can't come back it doesn't work and he actually did bring it back uh right credit but right and, and again maybe i'd be upset too but he's you know he's like yeah you're, if you leave you're not coming back i mean it's a little fucked up to choose sting over miles like i, I, I was kinda... texting that i mean listen it's solo sting you know what i mean like if it's like yeah. hey do you want to join the police, the police? Like, right yeah, yeah. yeah sting's maybe tired of, sting's tired of fucking playing bass and singing so yeah, yeah. 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 Well, that's what yeah, he's going to get to play with Stuart Copeland. It's going to be fucking yes. awesome. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, and and he he said somebody had given him a copy of the police's first record in, in the 80s. And then he was just a full on uh, fan. So I guess he felt like he had to go do that. Um, well, that was a really great band, though, from a jazz perspective, like. Yes. Uh, Andy Summer. Marsalis uh, playing it. I mean, it was like. You know, that was that was a very high profile gig. Yeah, Stings, Stings. Yeah, that that uh, like the bring on the night era was right. was all jazz and, and improv. It was funny. I saw a documentary um, one time where Sting was being interviewed about putting together that that um that band. And from his perspective, he like was finding. I mean, I could be getting this wrong. I saw this like a bunch of years ago, but I saw it was kind of funny because he was talking about like, yeah, you know, just wanted to find some young black musicians from the United States and like, give them a, give, give them a little help in their careers and try to like lift them up a little bit. It's like, dude, you've got Branford Marsalis. Like, he's literally like, <laughs> he, he's the closest thing to a jazz dynasty that there, that there is, you know what I mean? It's like, you're not grabbing guys off the street here. It was like <laughs> the best fucking band that already existed. Yeah. You put your name on it. That's really <laughs> anyway, funny. Um, so um, he 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 goes on tour with Sting. He comes back. He joins back with Miles Davis, which I guess is a testament to his talent, because Definitely. you know my Miles swallowed his pride and took him back. Um, but then, uh, so let's fast forward to like I guess it's ninety one or ninety two. Bill Bill Wyman announces I, I want to say nineteen eighty nine. Um, uh, the, that the Steel Wheels album and tour is going to be his last. Uh, he's quitting the Stones after that tour, and um, they're they're now they now have to start the process. I, I guess when that tour ends, they or, or they gotta start auditioning bass players. And um, Bill Wyman, by the way. I feel like is a very underrated bass player. Like when you've got a band with Keith Richards and Charlie Watts and Mick Jagger and so much person, Ron Wood, like there's so much personality in all those people. 
Like the bass player is just naturally going to get lost in the shuffle. And Bill Wyman didn't have a ton of personality. He kind of just stood there on stage like an anchor. But some of those bass lines are are absolutely iconic. And I, I don't oh, without a doubt. Yeah, I don't think he gets the credit that he deserves. Um those those well, were saying underrated bass player is kind of redundant. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like one of the things I really liked about this documentary is just how much they talk about what being a bass player is and isn't, you know what I mean? And like what makes a bass player a good bass player. Um, and you know, uh, Bill Wyman and Daryl Jones are both just great bass players. You know what I mean? But people tend to remember what's the, the flashiest, most in your face shit that you see. And that's just not really what a bass player is supposed to do. In fact, when a bass player does do that, it can very easily detract from the band. So it looks weird, right? Yeah. It's, I I, I was, I was at a concert Friday night. I I was, uh, I was at the, I was, I was at the toadies at the stone pony. Speaking of, speaking of stand up, the toadies, they're my favorite band of the nineties. Speaking of stand up bass, Reverend Horton heat opened up. But um, there is a band called Nashville Pussy that was that that opened. You you've opened for them, Chris. They're fucking great. But the lady, note of this, the lady who played bass was like prancing all over the stage and making like guitar faces. And I did find like I was kind of looking at her like, what the fuck? You're the bass player. Why? (laughs) Why are you trying to be flashy? So when you when you say when Bennett, when you said like when when they do try and and and, uh, you know, be super high energy and over the top, it it almost detracts from the rest of what's going on. Right. And, and, you know, it's interesting because, um, you know, certain songs like when you're a bass, when you're a bass player, like you play in cover bands. I've also done a lot of cover band gigs. Mm -hmm. There are like these certain spots where they're going to be like bass solo you know what i mean and they're and it's just like it's it's fucking annoying man because like you know my job is to keep people dancing on the dance floor right i gotta be like connecting with the drums playing in that area that is like the glue for everybody else and then it's like all of a sudden everybody else stops playing and you're supposed to like entertain the crowd also keep everybody on the dance floor play something that's soloistic that also fulfills like what's being a baseline all those things are very complicated to like finagle and sometimes they'll do it to you like that what the my my stress team stress dream for bass solos is this song boogie oogie oogie you guys mm-hmm. know the song yeah sure okay so there's one moment they're like listen to my bass player and then the bass player in the actual recording just stays with stays on the bass line which is the appropriate thing to do mm-hmm. because it's a disco song you know you can't destroy the pocket you have to like keep it going because everybody's trying to get laid on the dance floor so I usually just want to do that, but some people are like, go again, take a solo, take a solo. Anyway, so every Stones gig I've seen, they essentially do that to Daryl on Miss You, which is like also yeah. like the disco, disco tune, song. right? It's the disco tune. And like, you know, Bill Wyman didn't take a solo on that, but they always make him take, they always make Daryl take a solo on Miss You because it is kind of bass forward. It has an iconic bass line. Um, and he does a fucking great job. He does a great job. That is like a, he's being handed this like very kind of unwieldy thing, which is like keep the disco pocket happening for a stadium of 80,000 people and also take a solo. 
at the same time. And everybody's just going to be looking at you. You know what I mean? It's not like you're not getting supported from the rest of the band. Yeah. Right. So like to me, seeing Daryl handle that, be creative, play melodies, return to the pocket, you know, like the way that he, and he, he goes on for a while and he's like unfazed by it. You know, like that to me is like a good example of like the really high level of musicianship that he has, even though he's taking a bass solo and yeah. being flashy. Yeah. yeah. Now, Ben, I, I got a quick question about that. I, so I know chords on the guitar. I'm not good. I know mm-hmm. chords on the guitar and I've played very uh, just basic bass uh, with a, with this little band for a little while. Like literally I just learned the tablature and just kind of like played along with it. I, I, I wasn't good. Can, so I know a little bit about it, but like, can you explain to us a little bit more about what it means to be in the pocket? Like they kept bringing that up. And I think along with that, and if I'm correct, what is that? I always think it's, it's so interesting that the rhythm section basically is the drums and the bass and like what, what that connection is and, and what it means to be in the pocket. Yeah, that's a great question. And, um, they, they interviewed Don was a lot mm-hmm. in the, um, in the documentary. And he has a great little part where he's talking about sort of the elasticity of like, in particular, the stones, let's, let's keep it within the context of the stones, because when you listen to the stones, it feels so casually put together. Like they kind of like the songs kind of start in this way where it kind of feels like they all kind of just like tumble into this thing when that they're doing together. And then it's like, Oh yeah, do some of that. Right. It's got this very kind of casual, um, non self. I don't know. You guys know what I'm trying to yeah, say. They're, they're, it, it, they're feels, sloppy. it feels sloppy. Yeah. Yeah. It sloppy feels in a good sloppy. way. It yes. feels sloppy in a good way. Yeah. Is it actually sloppy? No, it's not actually sloppy, you know? And what, how is that being created? Well, if you, if you like, when you're listening to the stones, if you try to like bring your attention just to Charlie, you know, or Steve Jordan now, yeah, who does a great job of playing like Charlie, by the way, um, you're going to hear just incredibly solid time. You know what I mean? And sometimes it feels like it's even like rushing a little bit. Um, so think of that as like the forward points. And then where the bass is playing is like a little bit laying back. Like it's a little bit later than that. Right. Mm-hmm. The distance between those two things is the pocket. Okay. Okay. So then like Keith talks about this, Keith can be, he's like, I like to push and pull, you know what I mean? Yeah. To give it this kind of like interesting thing. He's like, but in order to do that, he talks about this in the, in the documentary, in order to do that, the rhythm section has to be solid as fuck. And he actually says, which i deeply agree with him about this, that the rhythm section should be paid extra, which I was just like, yes, <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, we carry more gear. We get less love. We play the whole time. We support everybody else. You know what I mean? It's like pay me more. Come on. Anyway. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the basic premise is that you have this, like if the bass player and the drummer are playing completely right in the exact same moment, right on top of each other, it's kind of a narrow pocket, mm-hmm. right? There's not a lot of room around that, but when you have, and they're talking about this, um, I think in, in fact, uh, what's her name? Uh, Lisa, Lisa, Lisa Fisher. Yeah. Same background with them for years. Right. She talks about, uh, what it's like when a bass player rushes. She's like, it's just not cute. Yeah. And it's like, right. It's not cute. It's like, you have to sit in the right spot behind where the drums are to give it this kind of casual weight to the back end of the, of the thing. And then the distance between the front 
of the beat where the drums are and where the bass is in the back, that's your pocket. Does that sort of like work as a metaphorical, like there's a space? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's why that's why they call it the pocket. And then like, if you're the guitar player and you like just drop a a rhythm, like if you're playing rhythm guitar and you drop it right between those in the right spot, it just feels like it's so good. Is there, whether it's stones or somebody else is in, not to be spot, but is there, is there some, a song that you can think of that's like, that's the, perfect example like uh, just a deep pocket or not to put you on the spot but uh i mean you know like or even a band i mean maybe it's i mean the stones are the well i mean if we're talking we're talking about the stones right now so you know they have in particular an incredibly wide and elastic pocket that is Mm -hmm. like a very that's what that is a good way of that's another way of describing what we were talking before like what's this like sloppiness sort of thing this like cultivated sloppy feel that's like a very wide pocket you know Mm -hmm. um so i feel like the stones are a really beautiful example to think about that and you know i've i've covered stones tunes and played with bands and like trying to actually make that work the way that they make it work it's not the same thing as just being like fuck it yeah you know what i mean you have to like really like as a bass player because you know i try to sit in the right spot you know that largely is my job you know put one note in the right place. Like that's what my gig is, you know? So like that, where that right place is a very subtle thing, but sitting back as far as Daryl Jones does when you have a drummer pushing that far, because the drummer is pushing forward. That's actually like, there's a lot of gravitational force to that. Like it makes you want to go towards them. You know what I mean? So you kind of have to like very consistently stay back and it has to be the same amount of back Mm -hmm. the whole time. Like if you're, moving around a lot then it doesn't have a pocket you know what i mean it sounds sloppy it sounds like the bass player doesn't know where he should be putting his notes but when you finally find it you drop it down right in the right spot and like reggae reggae bass lines like if you like bob marley family man the bass player for bob marley fucking amazing bass player really creative lovely bass lines he has such a great sense of pocket like where he where he drops notes it's like just it leaves this big open space for the other shit to. Right. To it sit. leaves. I guess. So when you're talking about um, the Stones rhythm, say if it's either Charlie or Steve Jordan, I get when it's that wide a pocket, then that allows Keith and Ronnie to to do the weaving that everybody talks right. about. Exactly. Where those guitars, where the sound just weaves in and out of each other. You don't know. You, who, know how, you don't and, know and, who's and, lead. You don't know who's rhythm. Right. And it always, it has this feeling where it kind of like starts to like dissipate and then it comes back together. You know what I mean? Like it has this like kind of breath to it, Mm -hmm. their, their style of weaving together. And that takes place within that pocket that exists. You know what I mean? You've got the drums on the front side of it. You've got the bass on the back side of it. Then you have that weaving taking in like all the, all the breath that happens there where it can become less tight, you know, it can loosen up and then tighten up again that space all takes place within that pocket. So them having that wide pocket like that really like, you can see why they were like this guy, you know what I mean? When he came in and did it because I, I somebody who was just like trying to play up all on top of and being like exactly with Charlie wouldn't have gotten the gig. He -hmm. wouldn't have left the space. I I love what they said about how when when he came out that he was going to audition for the Stones, everybody was saying, oh, as soon as Charlie hears you played with Miles Davis, you're going to get the gig. And 
there had to have been five different people they interviewed that said that. And then they interviewed Charlie and Charlie was like, I didn't care that he played with my, he was like, I didn't want him to get the gig till I heard him play. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So right. I, th- I thought that was, I thought Charlie was going to be like, yeah, my, you know, but he, he was like, I, I heard him play and I knew that was the guy. Well, I mean, it's like, there's a, you know, that's one of the great things about like music is, you, you know, like you can get a gig based on your credentials, but I mean, if it doesn't sound right, it doesn't sound right. Right. You know what I mean? Like at the end of the day, it's really about, does it feel right? Right. If and that feels that... right. It's right. If it doesn't feel right, it's wrong. That's... You know, it's not about who you played with on your last gig. Right. Right. Like you can do a terrible job on this gig, even if you were with Miles on your last gig. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's such an intricate chemistry that they have that it's it had to have been the perfect person. I do do you think um so Bill Wyman quits uh like in 89. Do you do you think he was like this probably only going to go on for like another four or five years tops. Uh, I'll get out. Like, do you think he's, like he's ever st- like he's Steve Carelling it? Yeah. <laughs> do you yeah. ever think he's like, fuck 30, I mean, 30 years? Yeah. I mean, they were, they were an old fucking band. You know, it's like, if you listen to, if you like Keith Richards has been like the proverbial guy that won't die yeah. for like 40 fucking years. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean, like, in his doc, in his autobiography, they talk about he spent 10 years at the top of the most likely to die. Yeah, every year. Most likely rock star to die list. And then he gradually like came down until he wasn't in the top 10 anymore. You know what I mean? But it's just like, I, I mean, you know, look, first off, we're talking about like uh, Chip, you were talking about earlier what it must have been like for Bill to be in the band with all these other like very um you know, sort of gregarious gregarious personalities that are like larger than life and yeah i mean he's being very supportive he's he's holding it down but if he ever wants to have the like if he ever wants to be in charge of a musical idea he has to he has to make it through keith and mick you know what i mean yeah mm-hmm. Not to mention, you know, Ronnie and fucking anybody who's yeah. going to have an opinion. You're in a, you're a bass player. People, it's, it's like a thing, man. If you're a bass player in a band, you can drop an opinion, but people will steamroll your opinion oftentimes, mm-hmm. you know, it just, it just fucking happens. So it's extremely understandable why Bill after 30 years would be like, I've had enough. I'm a fucking rock star. I'm rich. I've done all this shit. Now I want to have my own band. I want to make my own musical decisions. Like, of course he does. He's like a great musician, you know what I mean? And he's got it. And he's, it's trying to get an idea all the way through, through to fruition is, is very difficult. And really Keith is the architect of the Rolling Stones. So he's going to get to have final say on whatever. So in, in, in the Stones defense though, like did you ever, have you ever heard this, the one song that uh, Bill wrote and song and sung and recorded for the Stones? Oh God. What, what, what song is it? It's, it's called the lantern. And it's on um, their Satanic Majesty's request, which is, um, I, listen, I know the Stones discography inside out. That is hands down the worst. St- like that was them. <laughs> that was them completely drenched in LSD, just trying to do like a Sergeant Pepper's 
And they I'm got, sure they got see, she's a rainbow, right? And, and then everything uh, else And 2,000 Light Years <laughs> From Home. They, there's yeah. two great songs on that album. Mm-hmm. But I'm they, sure Bill barely got that fucking on the record. I mean, I'm not, I mean, like, you know what I mean? Just like, they probably gave him so little room to fucking polish that turd. Yeah, you know well, I, mean? I got to imagine every time he opened his mouth, like, hey, what if, and they would just play that for him. And be like, that's why. No. Well, it's like, did you guys see uh, Hard Day's Night, the the Beatles documentary? Mm-hmm. It's like whenever George has an idea. Yeah. Right. And yeah. he has great fucking ideas. Yeah. Right. He's actually the only one there who's like trying to kind of be productive in rehearsal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, do you and I've heard people make stereotypes and, and jokes about this, but do you feel like there is a a bass player personality does does do you, do you think it's the cart before the horse does somebody choose the bass because of who they are does it turn them the way they are or are there i'm sure there are exceptions but is there like that definitive bass player personality in each band yeah and i don't think i have it which has pissed people off a bunch <laughs> of times you know like i'm i i kind of have opinions you know yeah and well, so, and people people look at me sometimes like you know that you're the bass player, right? <laughs> well, that yeah. that's what um that's why he said. I mean, I know you mentioned this before, but that's why he said he had to play with Sting. He was like he couldn't believe that the bass player was in charge and writing all the songs and singing all the songs, right? You know, and then and then later on in the documentary, he talks about how he's because he's working, he's got his new um. Uh, band is the band called in the blood or is that just a song that he's he's got a song i think called yeah in the blood. i think it was i think that was the yeah. name of the song um because i think he also has some family members maybe singing with mm-hmm. him or something yeah, like yeah uh, i think his brother uh, yeah yeah uh he he talks about how if he were to do an album that was all like him just doing his bass chop stuff you know then people would just really like pigeonhole him just as that kind of a player and he really wants them to cons- he really wants to be known as like a singer you know yeah he's got i think one thing i mean one characteristic of the bass player personality is that like we kind of wish we weren't the bass player <laughs> you know? i mean like i don't know it's great to be the bass and, and there's so many things that are amazing about playing bass like you know when you arrive in the when you were creating a pocket consistently for a while you know it really does become like this kind of transcendental meditation type thing you know you're really like balancing on the cusp of fucking it up in either direction you know and and like and the longer that you hold it together the more kind of kinetic energy builds up in that tension and it can really get to a place where you're just playing time and it it is like transcendental you're like oh my god this is fucking awesome you know and it's like that's an experience that drummers and bass players get to have with each other and Mm -hmm. if you're listening to it it just sounds like good music but the the drummer's on one half of it and the bass player's on the other half of it. So you got to kind of have to become a good bass player. You have to have the appreciation for nuance to find that that's your job. So that's kind of maybe a personality characteristic is to recognize that there is value in not being the focal point, you know, and mm-hmm. obvi- we all know people that cannot recognize the value in not being the focal point. Yeah. You know, Ken Krantz. <laughs> exactly well, and, and that's the thing that and again super uh super rudimentary for for me is like like i've played guitar a little bit i played bass and the thing i loved about the bass was like it's one of the first things that he said or somebody said at this documentary was like you have to give yourself over to the endeavor endeavor and it's like and 
when you're playing guitar, it's like more of like an aggressive thing where it's like, I have to do this now and do this thing where when I started playing bass a little bit, it's like, I felt that sort of like flow through it rather than like, okay, here's my time for it. You just, you kind of give yourself up to it and you're just in Definitely. kind of locked in. And I enjoyed that way more than playing guitar. Like it just, it felt so much more, more fun. And you're just, you're just in that, that groove. Yeah. It's like the type of thing you do because you really enjoy it as opposed to because you're getting tons of accolades, you know, mm -hmm. like playing, playing like a blistering guitar solo in front of like adoring fans has like a particular type of ego feeding to it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Which certainly can be like amazing. You know, that it feels fucking great. I'm sure. Um, I can tell from my friends that are guitar players watching them do it. They love doing right. that. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, like the, like what you're talking about, it's like this and you'd have to give yourself over to it. You know, I've, it, you know, you're right. In the very beginning of the documentary, Daryl talks about how that's like sort of the key to his spirituality is like really listening and being in service of the music, you know, trying to get his, like removing yourself, right. Taking your ego and getting it out of the way so that you can sort of channel this thing. Whereas if you're like, and, and the same thing can happen if you're playing lead, you can get out of the way and channel something, but there also is like a lot more room for you to just like go in whatever fucking direction you want to and try some shit. And mm -hmm. if you like, and if you, if your timing is not perfect, it's cool because you have a rhythm section, right? Like that's what Keith was talking about. He's like, I can go this way. I can go that way. I can pull this way and that way, as long as the rhythm section is solid and that's what he needs. So when you're the bass player, you don't get to be like, I'm going to go this way or I'm going to go that way. Cause the guitar player is keeping it down solid. Like, Nope. You're going to get fired and, <laughs> and hopefully before the next set, you know what I mean? It's annoying for like everybody in the fucking place when the bass player does that. I, I feel like, um, do you think like, so he's in his band now 30 years. He did like, there's no like, Hey, I'm going to go play with sting for a while. You know, like he's, he's in the stones now for 30 years. Um, but still not, like he's still a hired gun, right? Like he's not, he's not a full fledged member. Um, this yeah, I don't think that they're, they're not, uh, they're not delivering that title to anybody. I think Ronnie no, was, was last. Ronnie one. was the, and, and it took Ronnie oh, like 20, it. it took Ronnie like 20 years. I don't really? even, yeah, I, I don't even think they made him an equal member until like, like the early 90s or something. Wow. And I feel like the only reason that he really got like, even to have the kind of status that he did was because he was already in faces. Yeah. So he was like yeah. already a rock star. You yes. know what I mean? It wasn't like he'd done a shit. He was, and he was doing all the stuff with, uh, what's his face? The lead singer of faces. Rod, Rod Stewart. Stewart. Rod Stewart. Yeah. Um, so like he had a lot of credits to his name. He was already like, he had like a fancy fucking villa where Keith would go hang out and they would like, yeah, they, they were, guitar. they were already actually the, the story is, um, Ron Woods told the story in a lot of interviews where the Stones were his favorite band and he would watch them and say, one day I'm going to be their guitar player. And then he's out one night with Mick and with Mick Jagger and Mick Taylor, uh, who was the Stones guitar player before him. Right. And Mick Taylor quits the band right in front of Ron Wood. Like Mick Taylor turns to Mick Jagger and is like, hey, I'm out. I don't want to be in this band anymore. And when he walked away, Mick turned to Ron Wood and was like, well, would you want to be our guitar player? 
And then before Ron could say anything, Mick was like, oh, but I couldn't do that. I love faces. I would never want to break them up. And then Ronnie Wood was like disappointed and was like, well, <laughs> I'll tell you what, like if if you absolutely can't find anybody, you know, come back and, and let me know. And then, you know, and I thought it was Keith who was eventually like, we got to get Ronnie. No, it and was. Like, I mean, I'm sure Keith immediately was like, yeah, he's the guy. And they have such a great way of playing together. Like that whole style that like that. I mean, like I feel like 75 and on is like the best stones Yeah, mm-hmm. to me, you know, and like seeing footage of that tour, you're like, Oh man. Wow. You know, just like the way, the way that Keith and, um, and Ronnie play together is like, yeah, that's it's, the sound. It's, it's different than like Mick Taylor was, um, quite possibly the most talented gifted musician they ever had in that band. And he brought, uh, like, I think the records Mick Taylor did with the stones were their best. He did like exile. He did sticky fingers, exile goat's head soup. Um, he did, uh, I think he did a lot of let it bleed. Um, And what's the chronology there? Did he replace, he replaced, he replaced Brian Jones. Brian Jones. Um, and he, he brought like a sense of melody that they, that they never had. If you listen to some of the stuff on sticky fingers, like moonlight mile, that's, that's stuff Keith never would have come up with. That's, that's all Mick Taylor. And, um, but I think once Ronnie joined the band is, is when live they became the absolute, uh, greatest band on the planet. Yeah. And it's, which it's, is, it's and like, they're still so fun to see live. I mean, like so fun, yeah, you know? Yeah. It's like they're, they are not a tribute to themselves, man. They are like full fledged kicking ass. You know, I saw them 20 years ago at the garden on the 40 licks tour. Wow. I remember getting tickets like, Oh, this is probably the last time <laughs> I'll, I'll get the same. But that's I, like what Daryl thought in 93 when he joined the band too. Yeah. He's like, I'll do this for a couple of years. For a couple of years. I'll record they, an album or two. How much longer can this possibly go on? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I saw them at the garden and it was, it was probably the best show I ever saw in my life. Like they, they were, and, and again, you were like, Oh, you thought they were so old then. Cause they were, you know, they were probably in their late fifties or early sixties. You know, they're probably in their mid fifties when I saw them. And mm-hmm. you were like, "Oh, how much longer can they?" But then it ended up like you couldn't believe how uh, how tight they sounded. They and it was during that forty licks tour was really cool because they were doing like um, they would they would come to a town and play a stadium and play an arena and then play like a club. So they were doing medium sized shows, really huge shows and then intimate shows. Oh, my um, God. That'd be so cool to see him in a club. They were. Yeah, they well, they played they played Roseland Ballroom. So it was like they were at like Giant Stadium, the Garden and, and Roseland. And uh, I got to see him at the Garden. And um, like now, I think Mick will admit like the sets are fairly standard greatest hits. It's like they mix it up. They'll mix up the first few songs and throw in some some rarer stuff. And then it's just I think I read an interview where Mick was like, I just I don't want to look out in the crowd and not see people singing along at, at my age. But yeah. for 40 licks, they were doing um, different set lists every night. Every night they would spotlight a different album. 
So like wow. when I saw them at the garden, they they played their first four or five songs and then a giant exile on Main Street banner oh, came down from the rafters. And how, like, how grateful would you be to be there on exile on Main Street night? You know what I mean? I was I was I mean, that that's my oh, that's not my favorite album by them. That's just my all time favorite album <laughs> that's ever existed. I just wish you were there and the her her satanic majesty's thing just dropped down. I don't think they were I don't think they were doing uh, satanic majesty <laughs> nights. <laughs> but um oh god, can you imagine they like bring out Bill Wyman to sing the lantern? <laughs> but they they were doing blues covers. They did like two or three like they did little red rooster and uh like a few uh, um uh manish boy like they did they did a cover of um, Love Train by the OJs. Oh, that's great. And the whole place, I mean, it was like they blew the roof off the place. And then that's when you're like, oh, they're there. It's like it's like we said before. It's like it looks sloppy, but it's so tight when you're actually listening to it. It's like they mm -hmm. they fool you. Yeah. It's really about the energy. You know what I mean? There's like, it's music is, it's really, it's alchemy. You know what I mean? It's like hard to say why it ends up being as good as it is. You know, if it were so easy to just like cook up a hit, everybody would just cook up a hit, but it's like, there's some, there's some je ne sais quoi happening in there, yeah. you know? And when you, when you're in a giant stadium and the stones are playing, it's, it's so infectious. You know what I mean? Like I've seen bands just suck on yeah. a big stage before yeah. it's mm -hmm. not like the room will do it if you won't do it you know right. but like you know i every single time i've had the chance to watch the stone set i've watched the stone set and i've never been disappointed even for like one fucking second yeah even even when uh some people will complain when keith gets his like Mick takes a break and Keith sings a couple of songs. That's my favorite part of when everybody leaves <laughs> for i'm i'm such a huge keith richards fan that I'm like basically just like waiting for those two songs. <laughs> yeah. I, I even think that part's good, man. And it's like, it's, it's like, I love that Keith gets up and does his thing. And obviously like Nick's putting a shitload of energy out. He needs yes, yeah. to go backstage. Well, do you know, it's take a fucking rest. It's in their con it's in their contract. I guess things were so contentious at one point that it's written into their contract that when Keith is singing his two songs, Mick's not allowed on the stage. <laughs> I didn't realize that. Yes. That's so, I mean, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure he, he, let's like you said, I'm sure he needs the breather, but that's in yeah, listen. And he, Keith, he, Mick was probably just giving him these awful looks like, what are you doing? Yeah. dude? <laughs> Keith can't remember the words to any of his songs. I think ever since he fell out of that coconut tree, like he can't, uh, he can't remember words, but he just plays with so much heart. Yeah. That you're like, I don't even care that he's mangling the lyrics to, to this also song. He's so stoked to be up there yeah. singing. He's yeah. got such a, he's, he's just very, very positive energy wherever he gets there. And just, just for the record, uh, I've seen it. Mick uses a, a, he uses a lyric little, whatever minitron yeah, or whatever like prompter yeah. teleprompter well, he yeah, he's yeah. got a prompter he, he should lend it to keith like he should <laughs> <laughs> um well uh oh, i had one more thing and it's gone oh i was gonna say you need um, a teleprompter ken yeah i, I, I need <laughs> one um listen uh next time you're with the stones don't hesitate to tell daryl if he wants to come on and we we he can reach easily two to three hundred people on an episode. Yeah, yeah. he's by that the way, would be great for his Instagram following. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> and that's that's your in, Bennett. That's your in. Hey, now uh, hey, I have hey, Darryl, in. I've hey, hey, Daryl, do you want to be on a podcast with two mid-level comics that nobody's ever heard of before? Daryl, <laughs> Daryl. <laughs> no, I'm just going to let him know, man. I've literally been an expert, like, interviewee about you. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. Like, do you it know is. that I'm one of the foremost experts on Daryl Jones for the I Love Rock and Roll <laughs> podcast? <laughs> All right. Well, listen, Bennett, thank you so much for coming on. That was actually really um, I feel like I learned something uh, about uh, how music is made. So I, well, I appreciate I hope it. It was that. funny. Thank you. Yeah. No. Yeah. And I have to say, Bennett, I did. I'm doing the math right now. Hold on just a second. Uh, yeah. You stayed in the pocket the entire time. The whole episode. Oh, yeah. Boom. You, were, you did it, buddy. Thanks, Chip. You, did. Hey, you stayed right in the hey. pocket. You too, buddy. You yeah. too. Yeah, that was a lot of fun, guys. Thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, yeah thanks, man. Of course. How how can uh, how can people find you and your band? Well, the band is called Ghost Hounds with an H, um, and we are on every streaming service. And we got a we recently finished a new record, which is going to be coming out sometime in the next I don't know period of time. <laughs> so uh, we've we've got a, we've got a bunch. I don't, I don't know when we're going to drop our first single, but I'm excited about it. Um, we are going to be doing a pretty cool blues cruise in, I think, March of uh, 2023 in the, nice. in the um, Gulf of Mexico. So if anybody feels like taking that risk, <laughs> you know, we all know what's happened on those before. But, uh, you know, lots of bands, lots of rock and roll, lots of, uh, lots of good times. Um, so... Yeah, we got some cool stuff coming up, and obviously, we're very grateful for people for checking out the music. And, yeah, um, well, and um, you'll have to once the album's out, you guys will have to come back on and promote. Yeah, well, thank you very much. We, I'm sure, we would love to do that. Yeah, Chip, yeah. Uh, you got any of them? Uh, just uh, at, at Chip Chantry on Instagram, Twitter. I'm going to be uh, this weekend. I think it's the 28th and 29th. I'm going to be. At Mohegan Sun in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Wilkes-Barre, northeast. North Is that how you PA. say it? I was no, it's Wilkes. It's Wilkes-Barre. Barry. Wilkes-Barre. Wilkes-Barre. I'm sorry. It's Wilkes-Barre. Wilkes I went to Wilkes school there. I went to school Wilkes there. So. Oh, you should know. Yeah. I should know. It's Wilkes-Barre. Yeah. Um. Uh, so yeah. How about you, Kenneth? Um, I have uh, I have a headlining weekend coming up in Connecticut. You can catch me at City Steams uh, November 18th and 19th. Really fun club with great food. So uh, come come say hi. Nice. All right. Uh, Thanks, Bennett. Bennett. Hey, thank, thank you, guys. Thank you yeah. so much. Thanks, Chip. Thanks, Ken. And uh, by the way, this was episode number 99. And we've Ooh. we've got we've got a pretty cool uh, we've got a pretty cool episode 100 planned. Uh, and you I guys... graduated in 99. So that's why I have this gang symbol. Nice. <laughs> nice. So did I, I had it actually. Wait, wait. So did I. Did you really? Yeah. Nice, but it's, yeah. dude. Anybody who's anybody graduated 99. Hey, that looks a little better. There. There it is. I love it. Yeah. I love it. No, it's nice. not bad. Wait, did you graduate high school or college? High school. Oh, OK, never mind. All right. <laughs> oh, <you're... laughs> You're, right. you're you're even more senior than I am. <laughs> we'll see well you next done. week.